this last Sunday of August. I just, I couldn't believe it. When I looked tomorrow, that's what I need to do the knuckles. I got January, February, March, April, May, June, July, August. So it's 31 days. We still have one day left. Um, so we're almost then at the end of summer for for all intents and purposes. Those who are uh, fans of summer like myself will argue that we still have like three weeks left until the official end of summer. But for all intents and purposes, we've reached the end of, of summer. And so all summer, we've been in this Gospel People series, uh, looking at how being followers of Jesus impacts the way that we interact with our world uh, and, and really just the way that we go about our everyday lives. And uh, I get to close out that series today, and I want to do that with what I think is an important refresher. And, and we all need refreshers from time to time to remind us of important things. Uh, so one practical refresher that I've needed uh, a few times in my life is regarding traffic laws. Uh, so I, I've had my license or my permit for about 16 years now. And in those 16 years, I've had to take a written driving test five times. Uh, and so you might be wondering, how many times did you fail it? And I, I managed the first time to just barely pass when I was getting my permit and then passed all five times. So then you might be wondering, well, how many traffic violations does Alex have that caused him to need to take this test five separate times? Uh, some of you might be second-guessing your decision to let your children drive in my vehicle for youth events. But again, I want to assure you uh, that traffic violations was not a cause of, of that. In all reality, it was I got my permit, I got my license, I changed my residency to Indiana, changed my residency back to Minnesota, and I got a commercial driver's license. On all five of those occasions, I had to take a written driving test. And uh, it's crazy the number of little detail things that you need to remember for a driving test, like the number of car lengths to, that you really need at certain speeds for a follow distance. Like when you've been driving for long enough, you just kind of like have a feeling like this, this is a safe follow distance. I'm not measuring out car lengths. But when you take that test, you need to know the number of car lengths. And, and there are a number of other things. And so each time I had to take that test, I took a little like online refresher course to make sure that um, I didn't have to go wait in that DMV line a second time in order to, re to retake the test. Um, so I needed a refresher in that. Many parents uh, in this room, perhaps, but certainly all across the country, uh, have felt like maybe a refresher course in uh, elementary, middle, or high school math was in order uh, at the end of last year. And as we approach the school year this year, as uh, parents try and help their kids navigate uh, distance education. So again, another time when a little refresher might be helpful. Um, and so... I hope today can be one of those refreshers that's just needed. Uh, I think we can all agree that there's a lot of tension, there's a lot of controversy, there's a lot of conflict in our world right now. But that might be the only thing that we all can agree on. There's no shortage of things that can potentially divide us. We're experiencing incredible tension in race relations right now and, and, and how to navigate that. 
we're experiencing constant controversy in the way that we are, uh, the methods that we're using to respond to a global pandemic. There's people on all parts of the spectrum uh, when it comes to that. And with each passing day, the conflict between opposing political ideologies just continues to ramp up. Like every single day, um, it's getting more and more heated. And if I, if I, I honestly believe that if I gave everyone like five minutes to mingle around in this room, uh, you might be surprised at how long it took you to find one, two, three people uh, that you agree with on all three of those areas that I just mentioned. And that's just three things, albeit controversial things right now, but still, it's just three things. The number of things that can divide us, the number of things we can have conflict over uh, is just crazy. So how do we deal with that, that conflict as a church body, like as Berean Community Church, but also how do we deal with that as the global church, that sort of big C church? And this is where a refresher might come in handy. Uh, because scripture has plenty to say on the subject. There's, there's no shortage of, of things within God's word that speaks to unity, that speaks to conflict, that speaks to how we should approach those things. Um, and I think these things, again, can be applied to the big areas, those controversial uh, nationwide areas that I mentioned before. But I think that all of these things that we're going to be looking at today are also incredibly helpful when we deal with interpersonal conflict. Like, that that happens within the church body. And so I just want to use a short passage from Philippians where Paul is addressing a conflict between two women in the church and kind of use that as our home base. Uh, again, it's just two verses, but I think there's so much that we can learn about conflict within the church body from these two verses. So we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4 today if you want to start turning there. Um, but before we really dive in, I, I want to go ahead and pray for us this morning. So God, I'm thankful uh, for who you are. I'm thankful for your son, Jesus, for what he's done for us. Lord, that through him, our conflict with you has, uh, has been reconciled. And so I pray as we look into your word that your Holy Spirit would guide us, that you would uh, reveal things in our hearts that need to be revealed, that you would help us to see the areas that we need to make adjustments in. I pray for spirit of grace, the spirit of humility amongst us all today. Lord, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Uh, so again, we're going to be Philippians chapter 4, and we're just going to look at verses 2 and 3 today. And I'm going to read through it real quick before we dive in. So it says, I plead with Eodia, and I, I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the, in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. So this snippet, again, comes from the beginning of chapter 4, and it comes as Paul is concluding his letter to the Philippian church. And, and he's addressing this conflict that is apparently happening between these two women. And this illustrates, just the fact that Paul needs to address this, illustrates an important fact. And that's that conflict is present in the church. And conflict is still present in the church because st sin is still present in the church. And sin, by its very nature, 
causes conflict, which leads to more sin, which leads to more conflict. And it's been that way since sin entered the world. You look at the very beginning of the story, Genesis chapter 3, man sins against God, creates conflict with God. You go to Genesis chapter 4, we have conflict between men, Cain and Abel, which leads to more sin, the first murder, which leads to further conflict, further distance from God. And that's, again, just the first few verses of uh, chapters of the Bible, and that's the cycle that continued and, and continues even to today. And praise the Lord that, again, through Jesus, we can be reconciled to God. That that conflict that we have created with our sin, with God, can be reconciled. But this passage in Philippians, along with really our own personal experience, uh, if you've attended church for any significant amount of time, um, reminds us that conflict still exists between believers, We see numerous examples of this in Scripture. Just to name a couple, Paul has to write about believers suing one another in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, In Acts chapter 15, Paul himself has this sort of sharp conflict with Barnabas, and that conflict actually leads to a disagreement where they decide to go their separate ways. Conflict is still present in the church today. And it's important to note that disagreement and conflict in and of themselves, aren't necessarily bad. There's a time and a place for respectful disagreement and discussion in order to correct and admonish a brother or sister who's gone astray. Paul describes an interaction like that that he has with Peter uh, in the book of Galatians when he recounts a situation where he opposed Peter because Peter uh, was excluding Gentile believers kind of to save face in front of Jewish believers. And, and Paul comes and he calls out Peter on this because Peter was in the wrong. So in that instance, disagreement and even conflict was warranted in order to correct Peter's behavior. But what distinguishes between necessary conflict and unnecessary conflict is whether it improves or harms the church's ability to minister, whether it improves or harms the unity within the church. You look at uh, Paul when he opposed Peter, when he, got, when he had that conflict with Peter, it was to bring more unity to the church, to bring unity between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. And so in that instance, the conflict was warranted. It was needed. But I want to I issue a caveat here. While there are circumstances where conflict might be necessary, it is incredibly important to choose the right forum for that conflict. We need to to pay attention to the fact that while Paul did uh, confront Peter in front of other people, he still did it sort of in-house, if you will. That's to say, he addressed that conflict within the context and within the forum of the body of believers. He didn't air his grievances in public. He didn't go find Peter when he was trying to minister to people on the streets and say, hey, I have a problem with what you're doing. And like, he didn't have it out in front of a bunch of people who hadn't entered into the church fellowship yet. And I'm going to be somewhat blunt here. Uh, I think that is a concept that we're getting progressively worse at as Christians. A lot of the reason for that, I think, is the advent of social media. 
Sometimes I fear that we've fallen into the same problem that the Corinthian church had in settling their disputes. In 1 Corinthians 6, again, Paul is calling out the Corinthian Christians for taking one another to court to be judged by unbelievers rather than settling their disputes internally within the church body. And, and he doesn't mince words uh, when what he thinks of this. This is 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 6. He says, If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? This is where he really doesn't mince words. He says, I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there's nobody wise enough among you to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. So there's a lot at play here. But one of the main ideas here is this idea of Christians, of the body of Christ, having disputes with one another in that public forum. And this passage still stands, I think, in the way that we settle civil matters, um, before the court, that we should try to resolve those things within the church body when it's one believer having a problem with another before seeking out that other uh, form of mediation. But I think we can also apply it to the way that we bring other disputes between each other, other disagreements, other conflicts between each other, sort of to the court of public opinion um, known as Facebook, where all of us, if you have a Facebook, I, I would almost guarantee you that you have people that are your friends on Facebook that are both believers and not believers. And when we have those disagreements with each other on that forum, whether they're personal, whether they're theological, whether they're political, or really anything else, whether they're necessary or unnecessary, when we have them in that public forum, the message of the gospel is no longer at the forefront. It just isn't. Instead, it's our conflict, conflict between believers that's, at, that's front and center. And again, I'm not trying to demonize Facebook by any means. I appreciate what, that, what it has to offer. We have cameras back here that uh, we use to spread the message of the gospel on Facebook. I'm not trying to demonize that, but I am saying that I, in my personal experience, and I think many of us have experienced this, sometimes that's the wrong forum. It's important for us to choose a proper forum. So let's, let's return to our passage in Philippians. Now, we, we don't have any info as to what this conflict necessarily is, but it's clearly something that was extremely disruptive for Paul to, to mention it in, front of, in, in one of his letters. So when we read these letters today, we're removed from the events. We're removed from the people involved. We don't know Iodia and Syntyche from Adam. We barely know how to pronounce their names, right? I, I spoke on this in, in youth group um, probably four or five years ago, and I just didn't even try. I gave them different names. I don't even I think it was like Pam and Sue or something like that. But we don't, we don't know them. But the people that this letter was originally sent to knew them. And they were likely aware of the problem, the specifics of the problem, 
But now the problem is being addressed in a letter that's being read in front of the whole church. This wasn't something that like you sent out and everyone read it on their own. Someone came, got up in front of everyone, and read the letter. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Can you imagine that if I had some sort of ongoing conflict for whatever reason with John Downer, uh, and Nathan got up and in front of all of us said, Alex and John, you need to work this out. Like, talk about an awkward situation. You'd be sinking down in your seat, maybe. But that's exactly what Paul's doing here. He's calling out these two women and their conflict and telling them to come to an accord on whatever their quarrel is. Again, we don't know what it is. But it's important enough that Paul is addressing it here. Gospel people are called to reconcile. Over and over in Scripture, we see the importance of gospel people pursuing unity and peace in the body. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. We can see that though this, this may be a unique situation where Paul is actually calling out two people who have a disagreement by name in one of his letters, the concept of peace and unity being kind of paramount of paramount importance is kind of a blanket statement to all, all of the early church, and it extends to the modern church as well. This little snippet in Philippians helps guide us when that peace and unity is disrupted, when it's disturbed by conflict, regardless of whether that conflict is necessary or unnecessary. The command is simple. Resolve the conflict. The command may be simple, but putting it into practice is far more challenging. Some of us have personalities that make conflict resolution a little bit more challenging. Uh, some of you may be familiar with the Enneagram model of personality. Um, my wife, Kelsey, is like all about it. Enneagram types. And I, I recently took the test to categorize my personality, uh, and reading my results definitely gave me some insight into why I am the way I am. So if you've ever wondered, why is Alex that way? You can go and you can look up Enneagram Type 9, the peacemaker, and it might open up your world as to, oh, that's why he does that. Um, but this is what, what that means for how I respond to conflict. Again, I'm called the peacemaker. I'm great at listening and helping resolve others' conflicts and helping people to come to an accord with one another. And I am terrible at managing my own conflict because I value keeping the peace so highly that I either avoid conflict. It's like, oh, I know there's conflict. I'm going to go like read a book, watch TV, just avoid it. Um, or I just pretend it's not there or not that big a deal. So again, not super great at, at resolving my own conflict. You know, other personality types are great when it comes to settling their own conflict, uh, but struggle to empathize when they're an outside party in a conflict. Still others are stubborn or volatile when responding to conflict. All this to say, 
we all have different abilities when it comes to managing conflict. So again, the command is simple, resolve conflict within the body. The practice is a little bit more difficult. But the command remains the same regardless. So how do we do that effectively? How do we do that gracefully? So let's take a look at the first half of verse 3 for a moment. It says, yes, I ask you, my true companion, help these women. What we see being modeled here is conflict mediation. Mediation is important when two fellow believers are unable to resolve their conflict uh, or dispute on their own. So Paul is saying, listen, these two people are having a difficult time working out their differences and instead of allowing it to continue, others need to get involved to help them. And we can likely make the assumption that this companion, this true companion, is a neutral party in this disagreement. As Paul himself is, is really making an effort to approach this as a neutral party himself. As he's writing, Paul makes a point to address both Iodia and Syntyche on the same level. In the original Greek, Paul makes it a point to re repeat the word plead. He says, I plead with, I plead with Eodia, I plead with Syntyche, putting them again on an equal level, even though the sentence sort of is a little awkward by doing that. He's not singling one out. He's not saying, Eodia, you need to just, you're wrong. You need to admit that you're wrong. He's approaching them on equal level. He's not taking sides. Instead, he desires to remain neutral so as to be able to help these women resolve their issue. Neutral third-party mediators can, can be incredibly helpful in conflicts that are struggling to find a resolution. And, and that's for a number of reasons. Um, they're not entrenched in one side or the other. Oftentimes we get into conflict and if it goes on for long enough, you become entrenched and it doesn't matter even if someone gives you a logical argument as to why you're in the wrong. You're like, no, this is my position. I'm not moving. Neutral third parties aren't entrenched. Often they haven't, uh, their, their perspective is, is fresh. Neutral third parties' uh, ability to think critically about these things is unclouded by the emotion of the situation because they haven't experienced the hurt directly. And finally, they have the best interests of the whole and not the individual in mind. We see this practice in international diplomacy, right? When two countries have a conflict that they can't seem to resolve on their own, oftentimes they'll bring in a third party to help mediate that issue. We see it in marriages and families. Healthy marriages and unhealthy marriages can both benefit from mediation from time to time, that neutral third party to help gain some perspective. Parents often play mediator in disputes between their children, right? Every year, my whole family, there's 10 adults, 13 children, all get together in one house for at least a week. So that's like conflict central, right? Like 23 people in one house for a week, like just sharing bathrooms alone is enough for a blow-up fight, right? Right? There's so much conflict that happens. And that's not to say that my family doesn't love each other. We do. We still get together every single year. If that tells you anything. But there's also plenty of mediation that happens there. Parents sometimes mediate, help come up with that shower schedule, right? And that third party, more times than not, helps conflicts that might last days 
get resolved in, in minutes or hours because of those things. They're not, they're not directly invested. Their emotions aren't running high. And they just want what's best for the whole. The presence of a third, a neutral third party is a tried and true method. And it's no surprise that Paul is instructing it here. But being willing to seek out or accept the help of a third party is an action that takes humility. Which is the other important element to resolving conflict is this idea of humility. It's important to to be willing to both offer help to others, but also to accept it ourselves. Because the attitudes of those involved in the conflict is just as important, if not more important, than what others can do to help the situation. In Philippians chapter 2, a little bit earlier in this letter, Paul instructs the Philippian believers how to treat and value one another. And I have to think that he had these two women in mind as he wrote it, knowing that he was going to address them later in the letter. So let me read it for us. Philippians 2, 1 through 5. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And he continues to, to describe that mindset. Imagine what conflict would look like if that's truly how we thought, if that's truly how we valued one another, like at all times, with no lapses. First of all, there'd be a whole lot less conflict if that was our mindset all the time. And secondly, conflict that did occur would be much more easily resolved. When we consider our own interests first, that's when we get entrenched in conflict, when we get entrenched in our position, my ideas, my preferences. But considering others first helps us gain perspective into their viewpoint. And that's what Paul desires for these two women, to be like-minded. Ultimately, to have the same servant-hearted, self-sacrificing mindset as Jesus. Why does Paul single out this conflict? Why is it important that we take note of this conflict between two women we don't know 2,000 years ago? And, And really, at the end of the day, why is reconciliation so important within the body? And Paul gives us the answer to that in the second half of verse 3. I'm going to read all of verse 3 again here. He says, yes, I ask you, my true companion, help these women. Here's the reason. Since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Reconciliation is so important because these two women have a shared ultimate identity and mission. Paul knows these two women personally. This isn't just two people he's heard about. He knows them personally because they have participated in ministry alongside both him and other members of the Philippian church. They both have shared faith in Jesus Christ. 
And they both value the mission of spreading the message of Jesus. And that should far outweigh any other disagreement that they might have. Our identity as followers of Jesus should always come first before literally anything else. We should be Christians first before we consider our identity with our gender, with our race, with our nationality, with our political affiliation, with our preferred sports team, before we consider our identity as parents, before we identify our identity as children, as siblings, as friends. Our identity as a follower of Christ comes before all of that. That's why Paul is instructing these two women to resolve their conflict and why we should strive to do the same in similar situations. Within the body of believers, we can always find common ground in Christ. Jesus himself prayed for complete unity and oneness in his followers in John 17. After he prays for his disciples, he says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. When the world sees us, again, Brian Community Church and Church Big C. When the world sees us united under the banner of Christ, we testify to his great love for us. His great love for his creation. Unity benefits the individual. It benefits the body. And it benefits the kingdom. Whereas disunity isolates the individual. It weakens the body And it diminishes our usefulness to the kingdom. That's why this is so important. And so I want to encourage you all to focus on examining yourself in this area. Like honest, true, uncomfortable examination. It can be easy to hear a message like this and say, man, so-and-so could really benefit from hearing this because I've, I've heard the things that they say or I've, I've seen the things that they post on social media. And I don't doubt that you know someone who could use a refresher like this uh, because I truly believe that all of us need this refresher right now. I struggle to come up with anything that might be more beneficial to us right now than a strong, unified church. I think there are three primary questions we can ask as we examine ourselves in this area. And I thought about expanding on these, but uh, I think I would just end up repeating myself uh, from things that I've already said. And so I'm going to sort of let them stand on their own as we close this morning. So three questions. Number one, am I creating or perpetuating unnecessary conflict in the body? Number two, Am I choosing the right forum for necessary conflict? 
And number three, do I have unresolved conflict that needs to be addressed? I'd encourage you to, to take some time this week, take some time this afternoon even, and, and just ponder those questions. And while I'm not going to expand on these, I do have a simple tool to give you uh, as you leave today. It's a little piece of paper. There's a, uh, a table out uh, in the lobby with a, a, a bunch of them sitting there. And it's got a couple of verses I mentioned today, specifically Ephesians 4, verses 2 and 3, um, and Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And I'd encourage you to put it in your wallet, maybe tape it to your computer screen, uh, or really put it anywhere that you think it might be useful. And before you wade into the realm of conflict, whether it's resolving a conflict or potentially creating a conflict, read these verses and use them to guide you in that. And if you're a social media regular, I'd encourage you, tape this one to your screen, especially in this season. Read, it's just two, two passages, short. Read them before you click post or you comment on something or you share something every time. And then let that guide, should I really hit that button or not? Because unity in the body is so incredibly important. That's why it's talked about so much in God's word. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for your word. I thank you that in you we can have unity with one another. And so I pray that you would help us to be honest with ourselves, that you, um, in this season of of conflict in our world, that you would allow your church to be the force of reconciliation, that you would use your church to shine the light of Christ in our world that so desperately needs it. And Lord, I thank you for Christ, that in him we are reconciled to you. In him we have the promise of eternal life. In him we can always find common ground to stand on with one another. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.